the estimate of the public health benefits in Reggie is in the billions of dollars in, in the time that it's been in effect. Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 54th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. For today's episode, I'm excited to bring you a special guest to talk about a topic that's been catching headlines lately in the policy world in North Carolina. But before we get started, we have a few updates to share with the group. NCSEA just announced the speakers for our upcoming Making Energy Work webinar taking place on August 18th, 2021. As a quick background, we'll dive in and talk at length about the topic of energy efficiency here in North Carolina. As part of the conversation, we'll be featuring Tim Gasper of Siemens, Rachel Gold of ACEEE, Ben Taka of Train Technologies, and Gudrun Thompson of the Southern Environmental Law Center. To register for the free webinar, visit makingenergywork.com. I also thought I'd use this platform to provide a quick North Carolina clean energy news update. All right, for a quick update on the big bill, H951, comprehensive energy legislation. As you may recall, the bill passed the House back on July 15th and is now on to the Senate. While NCSEA is appreciative of Republican House leaders for facilitating a robust conversation around critical energy issues, NCSEA does remain opposed to the bill and suggests that it could be improved in the following ways. Eliminating the mandate to replace costly coal with risky natural gas and allow the Utilities Commission to effectively regulate the regulated monopoly. Eliminating $50 million of subsidies for costly and unproven new nuclear generation at the expense of ratepayers. Establishing reasonable guardrails to prevent utility over-earning at customer expense and ensuring utility securitization of retired coal plants to responsibly exit uneconomic generation off the grid while controlling customer costs. Recently, the bill was brought up before the Senate Agriculture, Energy, and Environment Committee for discussion. NCSEA also just sent out some action alerts asking members to provide your concerns and feedback on this bill to your legislators. Make sure to subscribe to NCSEA's newsletters to receive those action alerts as this bill and its journey through the legislature continue to unfold. On the topic of H951, last week, a group of businesses with operations in North Carolina, including Google, Mars, Schneider Electric, Sierra Nevada, Nestle, New Belgium, Biogen, DSM, Unilever, and Gaia Herbs, penned a letter to Republican legislative leaders and the governor in opposition of the bill with concerns that it would limit access to affordable, renewable energy. Specifically, in the letter, they recommended that comprehensive energy legislation should include competitive procurement for clean energy and demand-side management technologies, preservation of the existing authority of the North Carolina Utilities Commission to protect ratepayers, the utilization of proven processes at the North Carolina Utilities Commission 
to determine whether new utility investments in natural gas are reasonable, prudent, and cost-effective, provisions that prioritize energy efficiency, improvements for customer renewable energy programs, securitization of coal assets, and the authorization of a market reform study. To view the full letter, check out this week's show notes. On the economic development front, the company SmartWires recently decided to relocate their Bay Area headquarters to Durham, North Carolina. A trend that we've seen with many a company in the clean energy sector, SmartWires specializes in optimization solutions to help utilities maximize transfer capacity on their grids. They are also intimately involved in helping those same utilities integrate renewables across the grid as well. This announcement to relocate will bring about 250 jobs to the area as part of a $2.8 million incentive package from the state of North Carolina. The decision was fueled by the cost of living, existing ecosystem of companies within the tech and energy sectors, and the local hiring pool. All right, well, let's jump into the topic of today's episode. As we mentioned during the updates a little earlier, we've been seeing a lot of momentum around the topic of H-951 here in the state. A core component of this bill was the inclusion of a provision at the last minute that would prohibit unauthorized executive branch actions, which would limit the authority of the Environmental Management Commission to move forward on petitions like the one recently approved on the topic of the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. So today we're going to take a deep dive into the topic of REGI, what it is, what it would mean for North Carolina ratepayers, and how it fits into the overall picture of meeting our state's carbon reduction goals established under Executive Order 80. So with that, let's kick off the 54th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Today, I have the distinct privilege of introducing our next guest, who is a staff attorney with the Southern Environmental Law Center in their Chapel Hill office. Our guest leads SELC's North Carolina Solar Work, practicing before the North Carolina Utilities Commission. He is also one of the lead attorneys working on the effort to join the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. Outside of work, he enjoys exploring North Carolina's natural beauty from Klingman's Dome to Ocracoke, gardening, and combing used bookstores. Friends of the pod, please welcome Nick Jimenez, staff attorney with the Southern Environmental Law Center to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Nick, welcome to the pod. Thanks, man. It's an honor to be here. We're so excited to have you on this episode. Uh, so just to get things started, can you tell us a little bit more about the Southern Environmental Law Center and the work that you all do um, and the work that you do specifically on your team? Happy to. Uh, SELC is a, it's a public interest environmental law firm, so it's a nonprofit. We're um, based in the Southeast, we've got offices in um, six states, and uh, I lead our North Carolina solar work within our broader um, solar initiative. Uh, I've also been one of the lead lawyers on the um, Reggie petition that we filed on behalf of uh, Clean Air NC and the North Carolina Coastal Federation. And as, as our listeners probably know, there's been lots going on in solar and also on the Reggie front. So I'm sure it's been keeping you quite busy over the past few weeks or so. Um, so since we mentioned Reggie, let's, let's dive into that topic and, and talk a little bit more about what that means. Uh, so there's been some momentum here in North Carolina over the past few months um, around the topic of the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, or as our listeners might hear us call it over the course of this episode, Reggie. Uh, with the North Carolina Environmental Management Commission, 
uh, voting to approve a petition to begin the rulemaking process and eventual public comment period um, as some of the first steps to, to joining Reggie. Um, but just to back up a little bit, uh, can you provide us a little bit more of an overview of what the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative is? Certainly. So Reggie is a cooperative market-based effort among 11 states uh, in the Northeast down through the Mid-Atlantic. The basic idea is that each state sets a budget for carbon emissions from the power sector in its state. Uh, Those budgets turn into allowances. So one allowance is worth one ton of emissions. And then all the states pool those allowances into a common auction. They auction them every quarter and emitters in the power sector in any state buy the allowances they need to cover their emissions from that common pool. Uh, Budget declines over time, so do emissions. Um, That's really the main way that it functions. There's also what they call a secondary market uh, outside of those quarterly auctions where emitters who need some extra allowances or have some extra allowances can trade among themselves. So this it sounds a lot like an idea of, of cap and trade. Is, is that a fair sort of analogy to make? Because I think that's probably the first place that our audience is, is going to go when they're thinking about this program. Cap and trade is a fair enough term for it. Um, we prefer to say something like cap and invest. The reason we don't go with cap and trade is because that that sort of trading really is the secondary market. The primary way that it works is that common auction, which just isn't really trading between the emitters. Um, And the invest part is also important because you can actually, what's kind of unique about Reggie is the idea of auctioning that those allowances on the theory that sort of the atmosphere and the kind of ability to pollute it um, should go to the public benefit. The atmosphere belongs to the public. And so the public should receive some benefit for letting it get polluted uh, to some degree. And so that, you know, that money, that revenue can then be invested for the public benefit. So when people talk about cap and trade, they they often think of um, some of the older cap and trade programs, like the um, acid rain program that was very successful, but relied on um, free allowances. And so you're really then you're really kind of talking about trading among the emitters um, and you don't end up capturing that that public benefit. So that's the difference. Cap and trade is a fine shorthand, but we, yeah, a little more accurate to use a cap and invest or something. That's a good clarification. So let's talk a little bit more about the the background of, of Reggie and, and how it got started. Um, so you mentioned now that there are currently 11 states participating in the program. But what really led to its its creation and, and when did it get started? Yeah, so it started, it was kind of um, a twinkle in Governor Pataki's eye and some of the other governors in uh, 2003. And governors at that time who wanted to take some action on climate change saw that the federal government wasn't really getting it done. Uh, it had recently decided to withdraw from negotiations related to the Kyoto Protocol, which we never joined. Um, unfortunately, that kind of, they, they were correct that the federal government wasn't going to move on it anytime soon. Um, those discussions took about five years, and then it, it finally got started. Uh, the auction started in 2008. And the first 
compliance period, which we could talk about, uh, started in 2009. Um, so it's been going strong for, you know, for about a dozen years. And then, you know, another core component that you talked about with this program are are these carbon allowances, right, or a, a bank that you're allowed to to emit up to, and that target gradually decreasing over the coming years. Can you talk about some of the carbon targets that have already been set through the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative and where it's moving over the coming decade? Yeah, that's that's really important um, because I think sometimes in the discussions of Reggie, um, folks don't understand that it's going to keep going down. So um, when Reggie started, uh, the they set a certain cap, um, but they have reduced that in two different program reviews. So they do that. They do a program review about every five years. The um, representatives from the environment agencies in each of the states that are participating in Reggie come together and they decide whether anything in the program needs to change. The thing we're talking about now is the cap. What they've, so they've reduced it in each of the two program reviews that they've had, and they've extended the, um, you, you know, extended the time that the cap applies out. So initially it was, I think, 2020. It's now 2030. Um, they've also made some other tweaks. They've, they added, um, some sort of soft buffers on the bottom and top to make the market a little smoother. Um, they're about to go into their third program review. They've, they've all committed to doing that sometime in 2021. Um, and everyone expects them to, uh, lower the cap and to extend it, uh, out past 2030. So, you know, in some of the modeling, you'll see, well, the ca- it looks like the cap kind of flatlines in 2030. And that's because that's what's kind of locked in right now, what everyone's agreed to. But as long as the program keeps going, it will it will keep going out. What I hope they do in this program review is the same thing that the state clean energy plan set as a goal, 70% below 2005 by 2030 and net zero by 2050. But yeah, that's going to be up for negotiation. Where are the current targets at now for, for example, for 2030? Do we have like a 30% reduction over 2005 levels? Uh, it's 30% below 2020 levels by 2030. Yeah, it's currently where it's at. Okay. So one core component that you mentioned earlier is the investment piece. So some of the, the funds that are, that are created through these auctions are reinvested in different programs throughout Reggie states. Can you talk about some of those programs that are seeing investments? Definitely. So that's been a, a big part of the program. The states just ultimately decide what to invest the revenue in. So it's up to each state. But the programs that they've tended to invest in fall into a couple main categories uh, energy efficiency programs, renewable energy, job training. Um, clean energy research and development and uh, direct bill assistance are some of the main ones. Uh, I think Virginia is a good example. They uh, have committed to investing um, half in low-income energy efficiency programs and 45% in a, uh, they call it community flood preparedness program. Uh, And then there's a remaining 5% that they're going to use for some administrative costs. So, you know, it's it's up to to each individual state, and you can kind of 
tailor it depending on the state's needs. You see some great returns on investment in things like energy efficiency. You know, you invest a dollar and the economy sees three back or five back. It's, you know, it kind of multiplies the, the benefits. And it's uh, really fascinating to hear as well that some of these funds are being reinvested into communities that are often overlooked in some of these energy conversations. Uh, so it's important, right, that we're bringing along uh, people from all backgrounds and communities as we move into a cleaner future. And, and Reggie is kind of the, the program or the mechanism for us to do so. So why is North Carolina a good candidate to join the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, and why now? North Carolina is a great candidate. Um, so here's how we know. I'm going to give a little background to kind of how we got here. But I think it's important to understand the petition and kind of where we sit. In 2018, Governor Cooper issued Executive Order Number 80 on climate change. That order directed the Department of Environmental Quality to prepare a clean energy plan on decarbonizing the power sector. Uh, it did that after about a year-long stakeholder process. Um, but on the key question of kind of what major carbon reduction policy to choose, the report in recommendation A1 said, um, we need some more analysis. And so uh, it recommended working with Duke University and UNC to come up with that analysis, convene stakeholders again. That happened after about another year. And this past March, um, Duke and UNC released a comprehensive carbon policy report that we sometimes call the A1 report. Um, that re report relied on some in-house modeling by Duke University and some, I think it's generally uh, conceived of as industry-leading modeling by the consulting firm ICF. And it looked at a number of major carbon policy reduction pathways. Reggie was among them, of course. And the report really showed that Reggie was cheap and effective time and again across metrics. So that's just kind of a long way of saying that there's a lot of analysis behind Reggie and showing that Reggie is a great choice for the state. You know, this was not uh, kind of a choice picked out of uh, thin air. Yeah. And, and I'll flag for, for our listeners that we actually had a chance to interview Kate Konchnik earlier this year from Duke University to talk specifically about uh, the A1 report. Um, and then just a few episodes ago on episode 50, we had a chance to interview Governor Cooper to talk specifically about Executive Order 80 and kind of the impetus behind that and what it's created since then. Um, and, and yeah, as you, you know, perfectly laid out, it's been a multi-year effort with many, many stakeholders in the room from utilities to clean energy advocates um, to manufacturing and commercial groups, et cetera, that uh, had, had come to, you know, these, this portfolio or menu of options for the state to consider moving forward. And, and Reggie was, was one of those that was laid out in, in that A1 report. So if North Carolina were to become a Reggie state, how, how would that impact our, our energy mix moving forward? And what impacts could energy consumers in the state expect to see? Good questions. So the best information that we have on both of those questions comes from the A1 report, this carbon policy report. Um, but experience in existing Reggie states is also useful. You know, the carbon reductions they've seen and the 
build decreases they've seen over time uh, as they've been in Reggie. But you know, generally, when you put a price on carbon, it discourages carbon emitting generation in proportion to the amount of carbon it emits per kilowatt hour, megawatt hour, uh, the carbon intensity of the generation source. Coal, you know, emits the most, so it's discouraged the most. Gas, a little bit less at the stack. Um, so that's what you see in the A1 report. Is when as soon as you establish that carbon price in the state. We turn down coal generation a whole lot. We turn down gas generation some, and that's starting in year one. It's about a 10 million metric ton per year reduction, which is around a quarter of our emissions from the electric sector. And I, I like to point out that that has a really important effect on cumulative emission reductions. At the end of the day, what matters for the climate is how much carbon is out there. And the measure of that is not really how much we're emitting per year. It's that sort of cumulative effect. So what that steep drop in year one is really important. The other, so the other thing that happens when you put a price on carbon is that that gets factored into decisions about what generation sources to build. It starts looking less economic to build high emitting sources. So the report, nobody's building coal, but the report shows that we're we would also build about half as much new natural gas generation between now and 2030 as we otherwise would. Uh, and that's super important because that avoids locking in those high, those emitting resources for an amount of time that really is longer than we're going to be able to run them. I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of stranded assets, but if we're building natural gas infrastructure right now, we're going to have to stop running it sooner than the 30 or so year book life that it tends to have. So we're, we're sort of locking in those stranded assets if we build that now. So it's avoiding that future rate impact. As for the consumers, you know, the A1 report talks about what kind of bill impacts folks would see. It really depends on what you do with the revenue. Um, but at most, residential customers would see something less than $2 a month uh, increase. And commercial and industrial customers, about 1% to 2%. If you if we take the revenue and pass it all to residential customers, then they would see a bill decrease. And if you focus that um, direct bill assistance on low income and moderate income customers, they could see their bills go down as much as fifteen dollars a month. So to to your earlier point about kind of making sure that this transition is equitable, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Yeah, and you bring up some some really some really good points specific to uh, generation um, and specifically natural gas um, and, and thinking about how, you know, towards the end of last year, back in September, Duke released their 2020 integrated resource plans, uh, which included uh, quite a bit of, of natural gas build out um, as uh, under some of those scenarios. Right. And, and you're right. It, it includes, you know, a 30 year sort of lifespan where, uh, we might be locked into some of those stranded assets. And so um, moving into sort of a Reggie model can help to disincentivize that in a market where the cost of, of solar and renewables is already, uh, you know, sharply declining and is already, you know, cost competitive uh, with natural gas and others. Uh, this just kind of further reinforces the point. So, you know, I, I briefly mentioned before the Environmental Management Commission voted to approve a recent petition. So some of our listeners may not know who the EMC is in North Carolina. 
Can you provide a quick overview of the Environmental Management Commission and their authority here in the state? Definitely. Yeah, it's sort of inside baseball. They, the EMC is a uh, essentially the part of the Department of Environmental Quality that's in charge of adopting or changing environmental regulations. There are 15 members on it. Nine of them are nominated by the governor and six of them are nominated by the General Assembly. And it just has general authority over regulations um, under the statute that creates the EMC. When it adopts or modifies a regulation, of course, it also has to have authority to, under a statute to do that specific thing. And so in our case, for example, the North Carolina Air Pollution Control Act tells the EMC to adopt air quality standards and emission control standards to keep air pollution under control. And so that's essentially what this would do. There's also been some news recently that Reggie has been met with opposition uh, down at the legislature, specifically as part of the Comprehensive Energy Bill uh, H-951, which many of our listeners are, are probably familiar with as it's been in the headlines and the news quite a bit over the past uh, couple of weeks. So can you tell us what's going on specific to the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative as part of this Comprehensive Energy Bill? I I can to some degree. I'm not a lobbyist, so I don't have um, my information sort of limited on this, but I do know there was an 11th hour amendment uh, to that bill to strip the EMC of its authority to issue a Reggie rule. Um, so Reggie, you know, it's, as I just mentioned, it's in the toolbox right now under state authority. It's cheap, it's effective, and it just doesn't make sense to, for the legislature to kind of explicitly go in and take that tool out of our climate toolbox. Um, that's kind of what I know about the the lay of the land on that right now. And I'm curious, who might be an opponent of Reggie and what might their arguments be against implementing something like the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative or North Carolina joining it? I would draw on our experience in the meetings that the Environmental Management Commission and a, a subcommittee within the Commission on Air Quality had about our petition. So that subcommittee had a, had a first meeting where we presented our petition um, and one group spoke in opposition. It was a local uh, manufacturer uh, in Charlotte. Um, and the, the reasons they gave seemed to relate to electricity prices and uh, a kind of fear that they would go up and make us less competitive. Um, that's not what we've seen in other Reggie states. Their price, their electricity prices have actually gone down, and their GDP has increased faster than the rest of the country. Um, and then it, a kind of general concern about the authority to do that. We think that's pretty plain, uh, and we we laid that out in our petition pretty thoroughly. Um, and I think the the last concern that we heard from some commissioners who opposed it. Um, and, and I think from that manufacturer too, was just whether Reggie is effective, whether it does reduce emissions. Uh, and the answer is yes. It's If you look at the emissions from the power sector in the Reggie states, they've dropped, I think it's 47%. And that's almost double 
the reduction in the rest of the country since Reggie started. Um, and that's what you see in the A1 report. You put the price on carbon and we just turn down that emitting generation. You know, I think that concern is understandable, but but not really based on the best analysis and, and evidence that we have. That's really good background. Um, so kind of stepping back a little bit here, at a high level, we've seen 951 pass out of the House. And as you mentioned, with a, an 11 hour, 11th hour amendment, including uh, that, that, that piece to kind of strip the EMC of their authority um, related to Reggie, uh, and and 951 is now on to the Senate. What's potentially to come of the bill? And does the Southern Environmental Law Center have an official position on it at this point? We Yes, we do. We officially oppose it at, as written um, for a variety of reasons. It's a, essentially a power grab by the utilities. Um, it removes a lot of the utilities commission's authority over things that it's the expert on. Um, you know, it retires coal, but not that much more quickly than business as usual. And those plants are uneconomic and they should be retiring anyway. The replacement resources, um, you know, should be left to the, to the utilities commission. Uh, there's there's multi-year rate making and performance-based regulation in there, which should be tied together. But the the way those provisions are drafted, uh, there's just too great a risk of utility over earnings um, and just limiting the utilities commission's ability to oversee that. Um, there's some securitization, but it's uh, it's capped at a low level. Securitization being you know bonding mechanism that allows retiring assets uh, sooner and saving ratepayers a bunch of money. There are some good solar provisions is the last thing I'll point out, but those, they're not as, as we would draft them, they're good, but they, you know, even those shouldn't be held hostage to a bill that's kind of got a lot of problems. Um, what's to come of it is, is pretty hard to say. I know the governor has, you've had him on, um, has, has stated that he uh, opposes a bill that won't get to the clean energy plan goals. Um, as far as I can tell, this one won't. I know there was a declaration in it at one point that it is expected to reduce emissions by 60 some percent, 61 percent. Um, but that's not exactly a commitment. And to the extent that the bill locks in new natural gas generation, it could make it harder to get to our short term and certainly our longer term, you know, 2050 net zero goals. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know if there's room to amend the bill and, and get it to a place where um, all sides are, are happy enough with it. But it, it looks like an uphill battle right now to me. Again, I'm not a lobbyist. Yeah, that's, um, no, all of that is, is really really important background for our listeners who have been following the news. Um, and for more additional information on the bill um, and NCSEA's position as well, uh, you can find that directly on our website. I know our team has been issuing uh, different action alerts specific to that bill as well over the past week or so. Uh, so if you're not already subscribed to NCSEA's newsletters, um, now's a good chance to do so to make sure that you're in the mix and uh, helping to 
push this bill um, and push our legislative agenda in the right direction. Um, so just last question overall, Nick, uh, what would it mean for North Carolina to join the regional greenhouse gas initiative? What sort of benefits could we overall expect to see here in the state? And I know we covered a little bit of that earlier, but just at a high level, what, what should listeners take away from North Carolina potentially joining as a Reggie state? It would be really positive. It would be terrific to see concrete action on addressing climate change uh, in a state in the South, to see Reggie expand, which is one of the things that will make it more efficient and more effective. Um, within the state, as I mentioned, we would see that steep drop in emissions, the reduction in cumulative emissions, avoid locking in quite a bit of new natural gas generation. If there is federal action on climate, it will actually position us in a more competitive stance if we've started to take action sooner. Um, and one thing that I didn't get to mention that I really should on turning down that coal and gas generation is that also turns down the emission of co-pollutants that come out with the carbon dioxide. So you end up seeing some really important public health benefits, especially to the communities that are located near those facilities. Uh, the the estimate of the public health benefits in Reggie is in the billions of dollars in, in the time that it's been in effect. Um, and then again, I would come back to the rev, you know the revenue reinvestment, and that depends on what we do with it. But um, just with the returns in, on investment in energy efficiency, um, or the potential to target bill assistance at uh, low-income customers, I just think are are really appealing. Um, so that's that's kind of the fun part. You get to decide what to to invest some money in. Yeah, and this is another opportunity for North Carolina to be. A leader in the southeast you know we've been a leader in solar deployment we've been a leader in energy efficiency as part of our renewable energy and efficiency portfolio standards this is an opportunity for us to be a leader in emissions reductions in the southeast and we've seen when we've made strides to to move forward a clean energy agenda the the sheer amount of investments economic development that are associated with it, as you mentioned, in some of these other states that have joined Reggie, GDP has increased. All the while, uh, emissions have decreased and customer bills have decreased. So, you know, it's a win-win-win all across the board. And this seems to be another strong opportunity for a win here in North Carolina as well. So, Nick, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, and I know our listeners really enjoyed the deep dive into the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. We'll provide some additional resources in the show notes as well to reference some of the materials that Nick and I talked about. But Nick, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. My key takeaway from today's episode is that joining the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative would give us another tool in our toolkit to help reach our state's carbon reduction goals. Reggie would help push our state further away from carbon-intensive generation resources like coal and natural gas, while helping to invest in communities across the state disproportionately affected by the negative aspects of pollution and the electricity sector. To find out more about Reggie and the recent petition in front of the Environmental Management Commission, check out the links in this episode's show notes. And that does it for today's episode. But before you go, we've got another episode of the North Carolina Solar Traveler.
every episode, join us as we travel to each corner of the state to tell you the story of clean energy and the value it brings to our local communities. Along the way, you'll also have the chance to learn a little bit more about each of the communities that call these projects home. So on this week's episode of the North Carolina Solar Traveler, we're headed over to Forsyth County, and to lead us on that journey is NCSEA's own Energy Program Manager and Duplin County native, Daniel Pate. Hello, squeaky cleaners, and welcome to yet another edition of the Solar Traveler. It's been quite a journey so far. We've done everything from enjoying Eastern North Carolina-style barbecue in Duplin County, indulging on craft beer created with solar power in Lenore County, and even checked out a renewable-powered Apple data center in Catawba County. And now it's time to make our way over to the Northwest Piedmont, to what would be the most populous county that we have visited so far, Forsyth County. Forsyth County is home to towns such as Kernersville, Clemens, and Walkertown. And, of course, the city of Winston-Salem, the fifth largest city in the state at just over 250,000. Shout out to all of our NCSEA members in Winston-Salem, including the city of Winston-Salem, the municipality itself. Did you know that the very first Krispy Kreme Donuts opened in Winston-Salem back on July 13th, 1937? This establishment now produces more than 5 million donuts per day and makes more than 2 billion donuts per year. Winston-Salem is also where Texas Pete Hot Sauce was first introduced in 1929. Now let's see what's going on with clean energy in Forsyth County. In Forsyth County, you can find around 631 solar systems and three biomass systems that generate over 20 megawatts of power. That is enough to power over 13,000 homes. You will also see over 5,000 registered electric vehicles throughout Forsyth County. And of all the towns and cities in the county, clearly the clean energy hub is Winston-Salem. In the city limits, you can find over 200 residential and commercial rooftop solar systems. And it doesn't stop at solar, Forsyth County is home to a number of energy efficiency certified buildings. You can find 68 energy efficiency certified buildings in Forsyth County, including 31 Energy Star certified buildings and 37 LEED certified buildings. That's nearly 9.5 million square feet. These stats are thanks to our local government clean energy report that were created using NCSEA's Renewable Energy Database. To check out more local government reports, you can head to NCSEA's webpage on the services that we provide to local governments. That does it for this version of the North Carolina Solar Traveler. I honestly learned something new every episode. Who would have guessed that Texas Pete was made here in North Carolina? And you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout 
at Matt Abel, M-A-T-T-A-B-E-L-E, for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. Which brings me to our next dad joke. Are you ready to hear my musical rendition? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. No ohm. Get it? What? W-A-T-T. Hertz. H-E-R-T-Z. Ohm. O-H-M. This week's dad joke was courtesy of our new Twitter friend, Duncan Campbell, and the Distributed Energy Resources Task Force. Make sure to give them a follow at D-E-R underscore task underscore force. We'll include a link to their Twitter page in this episode's show notes. And episode 54 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.